let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to begin in verse 12 and go to the end of the chapter. While you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. We have two great enemies, sin and death. But we have a couple other great enemies that I want to talk about first. Pride and contradiction. Let me explain. The Christian life has many paradoxes, truths that seem contradictory at first until we understand them more fully. In our pride, however, we are prone to reject paradoxes that we don't immediately understand in favor of real contradictions. And we hold those contradictions really well. We easily contradict ourselves. Let me give you a few examples. If you've ever worked in a manufacturing plant, you may have met a safety manager who was, would say in the same breath, safety is paramount, but it's necessary to cut corners to meet a deadline. Or you might have met a manager or some person, maybe you've seen politicians who will say, integrity is the most important things, but sometimes you have to shade the truth to get results. Do you see how easily we hold contradictions in our minds. In Corinth, they said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And they said in the same breath, there is no resurrection from the dead. How is it that they could hold these two ideas in their minds? Because they did not understand that the first statement was contradicted by the second. But Paul will help them. Paul did help them to see this contradiction, and he helps us to see this contradiction, to help us understand and have a more coherent, more logical faith, to help us understand how it is that Christ could be victorious over those two great enemies, sin and death, so that we, believing that, might benefit from that victory. Paul will help us, just as he helped the Corinthians so many years ago. His message to them in this passage is simple, and it's my message to you this morning. Christ has been raised, therefore your resurrection is assured. So, let us remain steadfast, knowing that our faith and our labor is not in vain. So if you found your place in 1 Corinthians 15, let me invite you to follow along as I read in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Now, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, 
then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As with the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, O death, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father in heaven, as we come to your holy word, we ask that you would give us wisdom as you gave wisdom to your servant, Paul, so that we might understand your word, that we might be built up in this faith which you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a lengthy passage. and Not only is it lengthy, but it can be difficult for us. And like children who struggle with their math homework and would rather simply put it away when it's difficult, There is a temptation for us to take passages like this and say, let's put it aside and move on to simpler things, things that we can more easily understand. But here I want to encourage you with some words from two other men, like Paul, Peter, and a man named Polycarp. You see, the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, wrote this about Paul's writing in 2 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You see, Peter recognized that Paul was a beloved brother who had received great wisdom from God. And Peter wanted the Christians of the early church to understand that the things that he was writing, the encouragements he was writing, were consistent and the same as the encouragements Paul was writing them. Even if Paul's words were a bit more difficult, a bit harder to understand, easier perhaps to twist by false teachers who would twist his words But even that was a sign that Paul's words were a gift from God as God's holy word. For Peter says that they twist Paul's words just as they twist all of the other scriptures, showing that he himself regarded Paul's writings as scriptures too. And yet, Paul's writings were difficult. And so about 60 or 70 years after Peter wrote, another man named Polycarp wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. They had asked him to write them a letter. He was a pastor. Polycarp wrote to them and said this, I am writing these comments about righteousness, brothers, not on my own initiative, but because you invited me to do so. For either neither I nor anyone like me can keep pace with the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul. When he was with you in the presence of the people of that time, he accurately and reliably taught the word concerning the truth. And when he was absent, he wrote you letters. If you study them carefully, you will be able to build yourselves up in the faith that has been given to you. Polycarp recognized the same thing that Peter was saying, that God-given wisdom was given to Paul, who was a God-given brother in Christ, so that he might write God-given words, Scripture, for the building up of our God-given faith. And so he, like Peter, encouraged those early Christians not to simply seek a word from their present pastors, but to seek a word from those whom God inspired to write Holy Scripture. And that includes Paul, who can be difficult to follow, 
as in a passage like this, and yet who was given great wisdom by God. And so what I'm calling you to do and encouraging you to do is to get ready. Prepare your mind for action this morning. Put on your thinking caps, because we're going to think about Paul's argument, which is full of logic, clear logic, by which he shows two things. The wisdom of the world is full of contradiction. But the wisdom of God is coherent. It's coherent within itself, and it's coherent with the world as it really is. And I want you to see that this morning. But to do it, we cannot go down rabbit trails. Otherwise, we will lose his argument. There are things that we might like to talk about in this text, but we're going to have to reserve them for other passages which Paul has written and other apostles and writers of Scripture have written. And we're going to take this chunk by chunk to see each argument as it comes in, Paul's, in, the, in this passage from Paul. And what we're going to see is that Paul goes back and forth from working through a contradiction in the way the Corinthians are thinking or living to working through the coherence of the Christian faith as he had received it and as he delivered it to them. He'll go back to the contradiction to show them how they're living a life that makes no sense before he comes back to the thing that does make sense when we understand it. And so we begin in verse 12 and we see that Paul is addressing a very particular problem in this church when he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Probably influenced by Greek philosophy, which we can understand if we imagine ourselves walking through an ancient Greek cemetery and reading epitaphs. They were denying the resurrection of the dead. You see, if you were to see on earth an ancient grave from that time, you might see a phrase like this. I was not. I was. I am not. I don't care. That was really on an ancient Greek grave. And it wasn't the only philosophy that was current at that time, but it was one that is not so different from our own philosophies today. Materialism, where people say, you die and that's it. There are a lot of people who just thought, the body and the soul perished together forever. And there were a lot of other people who did think that the soul had an existence forever, but that it was an existence where it was free from a body. That was something that the philosopher Plato taught, that everything had an ideal existence. And so in their minds, many people coming from Greek, the Greek-thinking world would have thought, what's the goodness in being raised from the dead? If they thought of this body like it was a prison... Wouldn't resurrection be like going from one prison to another? That's the way they think, thought. And Paul wanted to cure them of those contradictions. You see, they're saying there's no resurrection from the dead, but they have received on the basis of reliable testimony, as we saw last week, that Christ, in fact, has been raised. We know on the basis of solid evidence, they knew people who had seen the risen Christ. Paul was among them. And we have a manifold testimony of eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, testimony that would be admissible in the court of history if people would judge it rightly. We know that Christ did rise. But they're saying something that contradicts this. Paul goes on in verse 13 to show that if there is no resurrection of the dead, speaking of our future resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And the problem with that, the logic of what Paul is doing is showing that if you reason from the premise, from the basis of what you're saying, you're going to, your, your whole system of thought is going to collapse like a Jenga puzzle in a pile of contradictions. 
Let's see what happens, what follows from this. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and we are found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see what Paul's saying? I could say it right now. If Christ has not been raised, what on earth am I wasting my time up here doing, talking to you? And what on earth are you wasting your time doing, sitting here, listening to me? It's just vain and empty. There's no sense in believing something that's not really so, just because it might make us feel better or gives us something to do on a Sunday morning. No, if Christ has not been raised and our preaching and our faith is in vain and it gets worse from there, then I, like Paul, am a false witness because this morning again and again I have said Christ is risen. And so are you because you've sung it and said it to me in our greetings. We are false witnesses if Christ has not been raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised in verse 16 and onward. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worse than vain. It's futile. And you are still in your sins. All of your work and all of your efforts cannot save you. And so the message of the gospel is trust in Christ. Only by faith can you be saved. But if he hasn't been raised, that message is meaningless. It does nothing. And so that faith, it doesn't save you. You're still in your sins. It's futile if Christ has not been raised. Paul is making the Corinthians uncomfortable right now. Paul should be making us uncomfortable if we've ever entertained such thoughts. It gets worse. Those who have fallen asleep, that is, those Christians who have already died, it's wrong to call them those who have fallen asleep, Paul's saying. They've perished if Christ has not been raised. They've been destroyed is what he's saying. So he comes to this conclusion, this striking conclusion, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if it's just to make us feel better, just to somehow make this life better, then our life is the most pitiable life. It's the worst of all lives because it doesn't really work. It doesn't really make this life better if Christ has not been raised. You see what Paul has done here. He has shown them that their Single belief that some Corinthians are teaching leads to just one huge pile of contradiction. It don't make no sense. That's what Paul's saying. But I'll show you something that does make sense, he says. I'll show you what does make sense. In fact, Christ has been raised. It begins there. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I said that the Christian faith at the beginning is full of paradox. And I want you to understand what that means. A paradox is something that appears to us to be a contradiction on its face, but it's not really a contradiction. We just need to work to really understand it. And I'll give you an example from the book of Exodus. In Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, when the Lord showed His glory to Moses... He said this about himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In that first 
statement, God declared His great love and His great grace in forgiving sins. But He goes on about Himself, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How is it possible that God can forgive iniquity and not clear the guilty? That's the paradox. And Moses did not yet have the revelation of that resolution to deliver to the people of Israel quite yet. He simply had the two truths and affirmed the two truths because God had made them known. But we did see the resolution on Friday night when we looked at Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was a paradox that came to its resolution when we heard the message of the gospel that God did not clear the guilty, but he laid our sins upon Christ on the cross so that he, as Paul would say in Romans, can be both just and the justifier of those who are ungodly. And Paul's going to show us here that All of his preaching, in fact, is one coherent message. It makes sense. It's internally consistent. And so here it's like he loads up a cannon with all of his theology. It's like Paul's greatest hits, one after another. We can't go down the trail and look at what every one of those, unfold every single one of those. We'll have to wait until we can encounter them in other passages of Scripture. But Paul wants to show us that it synthesized, it all makes sense. And I'll give you three words that help you to make sense of it. Paul wants us to see that God's work of salvation has a pattern, has a plan, and has a purpose. It has a pattern, a plan, and a purpose. Here's what we see as we unfold this passage. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. There's the first statement of the pattern. We'll see it a little further here. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the pattern of God's saving work. We are all dead in our sins because we are all born in Adam. This is the banner that is over us, the designation under which we fall under by birth. We are those, when we are born, those who are in Adam. Get those words, in Adam. So crucial. Because what God has done with those of us who have trusted in Christ is He's moved us from that banner of in Adam to this banner of in Christ. We are under Him, we are in Him, we are united with Him. This is at the core of Paul's preaching. And so the same pattern occurs. Just as sin came through Adam and death came through Adam to all men who are born and all women who are born, for all are born in Adam. So all who are born again through faith in Jesus Christ to all who are in Christ, life comes to them because righteousness comes to them. This is the pattern of God's work, a righteousness and life that come to the people of God who are in Christ, not because of what they've done, but because of what He's done for us. It comes by faith to all who are in Him. But there's a plan for how this plays out, each in its, His own order. 
in our union with Christ, we are united with Him in His death, and we are united with Him in His resurrection. This is Paul's teaching. This is the teaching of Scripture. We need to understand that, but it happens in an order. When it comes to the physical resurrection, Christ is the first fruits, like the first grain at the harvest. He is the first fruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see what Paul is saying there. He's laying out the whole course of history in a nutshell, in a summary form. And there are waypoints, there are significant events in history. First, the resurrection of Christ, and then Christ's appearing. And then at His appearing, all who are in Him will be raised unto newness of life. And in the course of this all, God is subduing through Christ every hostile power, every power that is opposed to His rule. That's happening right now through the progress of the gospel, and that will be seen in a glorious way at His coming. And you might be thinking, where does all of our eschatology fit in this? Where does the millennium fit into this? Where do these things fit? My answer is, when we come to other books of the Bible, that's where they fit in the argument. I don't want to lose Paul's argument by going down those rabbit trails. Paul is looking at the big picture here of big waypoints in the course of God's working. And he wants us to see that certain things are happening that God is doing and he has a plan to it. And ultimately that plan is about conquering every single power that opposes God, earthly and heavenly, physical and spiritual, all of the kingdoms that oppose His rule and reign. The Lord is bringing them to an end, subjecting them to the rule of Christ. And there's a purpose for that. For God, in verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. That's Christ. There He is quoting from Psalm 110. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. That's the purpose, that God may be all in all. And this language is difficult to understand, but let me help you by reminding you of the truth of the Incarnation. Jesus Christ is fully God. He is the eternal Son of God, one with the Father. There is one will in God. Subjection and submission is a submission of one's will to another. How is that possible in this passage? It's possible because the Son of God became a man in the course of time. One person with a divine nature and a human nature, fully God and fully man in one person, inseparable and indivisible natures. And here what Christ does is He submits to the Father in terms of His human ministry. God has appointed that Christ should be what Adam was not. Adam should have ruled all of God's creation, but Adam failed in that rule because he rejected the rule of God. God appointed Christ to be the one who would come and restore what was lost because of Adam. One who would rule in the way that God intended from the beginning. As one who executes his reign 
in submission to God as Father and as Lord and as Maker, as is right. That's the purpose, that God may be all in all, that all glory might come back to Him, and that all His creatures might acknowledge that He, in fact, is our Maker, our Sustainer, our Lord. That's the purpose of what Paul has proclaimed. And the resurrection is the first stage in that final climactic phase of that purpose as God makes all things new through Christ. That work has already begun because He is risen. This is Paul's a summary of all of Paul's theology, and it's coherent. That's what he wants us to see. It makes sense. The resurrection makes sense in it, and our resurrection makes sense in it. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know they've received that message, but they're acting like they don't really believe it. Otherwise, what they're doing makes no sense. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, to explain that passage, it's helpful for us to remember how Paul describes dead Christians. He doesn't call them dead. He says they are those who have fallen asleep. Here he's just talking about normal Christian baptism, not some strange ritual that the Corinthians had ginned up. No, He's talking about normal Christian baptism, but he wants to, it's as if he's saying, I know what I mean when I baptize people. I mean it as a picture of the fact that they've been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. That's why they go into the water. It's like they're buried in the ground. That's why they come up. It's like they've been raised to newness of life. That's what I mean. What on earth do you mean if you don't believe in a resurrection? Why are you baptizing dead people? People who are dead in their sins people who are going to perish. That's what Paul is saying here. If Christ is not raised, it's just an empty, meaningless ritual. It's like saying, He is risen, and responding, He is risen indeed, and not really meaning it. It's just a contradiction. It makes no sense. Why are you doing that if you don't believe it? Paul wants them to see that their life is now a contradiction if they hold on to that false teaching. Not only that, but if they're right, then Paul's offended by what they're saying. If they're right, Paul is doing all kinds of crazy things. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, he says, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What does Paul mean here? God had appointed Paul saying, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul was to be a walking picture in his life of death and resurrection. When he fought with beasts at Ephesus, he said, it was as if he died. When people stoned him, and they looked at him, they said they thought he was dead. But he got up, and he went into the next town and preached the gospel. He was shipwrecked, and everyone said, we're all lost. But they weren't lost. He was bitten by a snake, and they said he's going to die, but he didn't die. His life was a picture again and again of dying and rising so that people might see in him the embodiment of the message that he preached. And it meant a lot of suffering and a lot of hardship and a lot of difficulty. And he wants to know, if you're right, what do you think about me? What do you think about what I'm doing? 
You're saying I'm wasting my time. That what I really ought to be doing is eating and drinking because tomorrow I die. In other words, pursuing a life of wanton pleasure. Just trying to satisfy myself as long as I can before the lights go out at the end. No, don't be deceived by this lie, Paul says. That's the context in which he says this well-known verse, bad company corrupts good morals. It's clear. Get rid of the false teachers in your midst. Stop listening to them. Don't be deceived by them. Wake up. Don't act like you're drunk, but sober up, he's saying. Don't go on sinning for these people, some, those people who are saying there is no resurrection. They don't know anything about God. They've got no knowledge of God. Don't listen to them, Paul says. It's just a load of contradictions. I say this to your shame, he says. But here he again turns to show the coherence of the Christian message. It makes sense, not just in terms of Paul's presentation, of how he understands God's Word, but it makes sense with the world as we see it. Someone will ask, Paul says, how are the dead raised? And this is not the question that someone asks really wanting to know. That's why Paul says, you foolish person. This is a question that is asked with an air of incredulity. It's a scoffer's question. It's someone who says, how are the dead raised? What kind of body did they come with? Because remember, many in that Greek world, in that Roman world, they would think in their minds that going from one body to another is like being transferred from one prison to another. That's no good. That's not good in their mind. Paul says, you foolish person, open your eyes. Look at the world around you. Or have you never planted a seed? Have you never gone to the zoo? Have you never looked at the sky, day or night? Can you not see by way of analogy that this makes perfect sense? When you plant a seed, what comes up? More seeds? No, the seed dies. Its body is destroyed. But what comes up is much better. Wheat, fruit tree, something much better. So you have an analogy where you can say, ah, the world does work this way. And what about animals? Is it so hard to believe that there are different kinds of bodies? Or have you never seen a fish? Do you go to the zoo and see humans locked up? Do you walk in the woods and see humans swinging from trees? No, there are different kinds of bodies. Is it so hard to believe that God might give us a different kind of body? And look at the heavens. There you see bodies too. You see the sun. You see the moon. You see the stars. And they are the same kinds of bodies in terms of being glorious celestial bodies, but they differ in degree of glory. And there you have another example in the natural world, and you look and you say, is it so hard to believe that God can give a person a more or less glorious body? It should not be hard to believe. And that's what Paul's saying as he comes to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what comes up is not. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. If you don't think your body is dishonorable right now, give it a few years. Pack on a few pounds. Get a little bit older. It's dishonorable. 
But what comes up is not. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. Again, if you don't think so, grow a little older. But it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That doesn't mean it's not physical. It will be physical. It means that it will be a body empowered by the Spirit of the living God. It is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man became a living being. That first man became a living being when God formed dust, the natural world of the ground, and he breathed new life into it. That's from Genesis 2-7, and Paul goes on, but it is not, excuse me, this last Adam, that is Christ, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He, the firstfruits, is the one who gives life to our bodies, to our resurrection bodies. And he's already begun that new life in us, causing us to be born again. And he will bring it to completion when he raises us up on the last day with bodies that are like his, as the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3. When he appears, we will be like him as he is, for we will see him as he is. That's what Paul's saying in more words than that. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. It is God's purpose that you should be made of heavenly stuff. The stuff of which Christ is made. Is it so hard to believe when you look around at the world around you and see pictures of death and resurrection every day? A seed sown, glorious stars, differing in degree of glory, and his people who live as new people, new creations, enduring all kinds of hardship, as Paul himself endured. Yes, indeed, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so as we come to the end of this passage, we are prepared to see the coherence of the Christian message, that the resurrection makes sense. And Paul has prepared us for this glorious passage that can be, that continues in verse 50 and onward. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. That's not good news unless there is a resurrection. And there is, so Paul can go on and say, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. You know that Christ may come before we all die. You don't have to die but you must be changed if you are in Him. You will be transformed. This is an awesome mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And it won't take a long time. It'll be in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul says, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And this must happen, for Christ is risen. So our resurrection is assured. Let me illustrate that for you for a moment. Imagine a table in front of us. And I take on that table, I load it up with dirty napkins. Dirty cloth napkins. And I take one perfectly white linen napkin and place it on that table. 
And it's there for a while. And some of the napkins around it start to look like it a little bit. And then I come and I take that napkin and I lift it up off that table. But I don't walk away. I just hold it there for a time. And I take my other hand and for a time I start to stitch in some of those other napkins to that first one. Stitching them in. And when I'm done, I finish pulling that napkin away and all those that are in it come with it. There's no longer a mess of dirty napkins. It's a beautifully white linen tablecloth, totally transformed. God raised up Christ, but he did not finish his work in us that day. And in the years that have passed, for 2,000 years, he has been uniting people to Christ by faith. And when Christ comes again, he will bring in his wake all who are in him and all who are still here, he will raise up with him. And we will be gloriously changed as he is changed. That is all of Paul's theology illustrated in one little picture. And he's saying, that is so. This perishable body must put on what is imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. It has to happen for us to come into God's kingdom because flesh and blood cannot inherit it. And when that happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass what we read about that last enemy, death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The last enemy is finally defeated by the risen Lord Jesus Christ on that day when we are changed and we are raised. For the sting of death, it's sin power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death no longer has power over you. Sin no longer has power over you. The law which can only condemn no longer has power over you. If you by faith are in Christ, for he has been raised, and so you will be raised as well. So what do we do now as we wait for this glorious resurrection? How then should we live? Paul tells us, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's talk about those things for a moment. Our culture, as I've said and I'll say again, our culture is a world that is full of contradiction, just like Paul's culture. When I was a boy in fourth grade, we had a class election for president. And I'll never forget the signs that the, the winner all posted on the, on the walls. They were persuasive. Follow the crowd. Vote James Patterson for president. I didn't know who James Patterson was. But I thought that must be the guy who's worthy to be president because everybody seems to like him. And me and all my classmates voted for him. It was a persuasive argument. It was an argument that persuaded fourth and fifth graders. It was a stupid argument. And that's the arguments that our world uses to persuade us that these things aren't true. Oh, that's what people used to believe in ancient days. Nobody believes that anymore. Oh, all the smart people with PhDs, all of the scientists agree. No one believes that anymore. Well, 
Last time I checked, consensus of scientists is not evidence for anything but a consensus of scientists. That's bad logic. Consensus of voters is not evidence for anything but a consensus of voters. It's not true because it's popular. As we also see, fashions change, fads change, beliefs change. But one thing has stayed the same for 2,000 years. He is risen. And he still is. And that's true. And you can trust it. And so hold fast to that, even when the world would try to persuade you not to. And when the world, because of its fallen nature, challenges you not to hold fast, because it's hard, because your body's failing, because you're growing older, you can't walk like you used to, you can't run like you used to, you don't look like you used to, and you're disappointed and you're frustrated with this world and this reality. Hold fast. And remember that this labor, this life, this work that you do in this body is not in vain. For this is not the body that you will always have. Christ has risen, and so shall you. So you can take that to the bank and remain steadfast, immovable, holding fast to the word as you've received it, knowing this, because he has risen, your faith and your labor. It is not in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the grace that you have shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you are making all things new. And we look forward to that day when you will bring that work to completion that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to your glory, our God and Father. We look forward to that day knowing that that confession is good, for it is true and it is real. You are God and we are your creatures. You are gracious and we are the recipients of your grace. Impart these truths, we pray, O Lord, to our hearts and our minds, that we indeed may be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.